glad to be here. Yay. Woo. <laughs> okay, you know how the drill goes. I say knock, knock, and you say... Okay, so let's try it out a few. Let me try it a few on you. I, I'm from Oklahoma City, and I actually brought with me today some of the worst knock-knock jokes I could find so that I could try them out on Virginia folks and, and see if you think they're as silly and corny as, as us Oklahomans do. Okay, all right, here's the first one. Knock-knock. Jamaica. Jamaica friend today. Knock-knock. <laughs> Gorilla. Gorilla me a cheese sandwich? Knock, knock. Do we? Do we have to keep listening to these terrible knock, knock jokes? No, you don't. Thank you for putting up with those, though. <laughs> Thank you for humoring me. Those were pretty bad, weren't they? Did you know, though, that there's actually a knock, knock joke in the Bible? It's true. There's a knock, knock joke in the Bible, only this knock, knock joke isn't funny. It's actually the world's most frightening joke in the entire world. I think you've probably heard the joke, but you just didn't translate it as a frightening joke. It's, it's found in Revelation 3.20. It's a scripture that many of you are familiar with. Jesus is saying, Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone hear my voice and invite me in, I will come in and sup with him. I'll have supper with him or fellowship with him and he will change our lives forever. Well, this, uh, this, this uh, scripture verse uh, actually has been illustrated by a painting. I, I think we have a picture of that. There it is. Thanks, Colin. Uh, this painting was uh, painted several decades ago by an artist named Holman Hunt. And when the painting was unveiled, of course, the media was there, and a lot of people came for the unveiling. And an art critic stepped up as they unveiled it, and he said, Mr. Hunt, he said, you've made a grave mistake in your painting. And Holman Hunt, the artist, said, well, what's that? And the critic said, you've forgotten to include a door handle. There's no door handle on the door. And the artist said, oh, no, that was intentional. You see, this door is the door of our heart, and it only opens from the inside. That's exactly how our heart's door does work, isn't it? Jesus will never force his way into our lives. He won't force us to have intimacy with him, but he sure does want it. And so he stands at the door and he knocks. And it's up to us to open that door and allow him in and have intimacy with him, have fellowship with him. Now, a lot of times we use this scripture, Revelation 3.20, in uh, evangelistic settings. Uh, in other words, we preach it to sinners. Hey, sinner, Christ is knocking at your door. If you just open up the door of your heart, don't you know Christ would come in and forgive your sins? And while that's true, this verse really wasn't written to sinners. It was written to a church in Laodicea. And it's, of course, in the third chapter of Revelation, uh, the author, John, is being told to send seven letters to seven churches. And one of those churches is the church of Laodicea. And in this letter, Christ says through John, tell the people at Laodicea, behold, I'm standing at your door. I'm knocking. Now, this poses an interesting question, doesn't it? Why? Would Jesus say to a group of people who call themselves Christians, why would he say to a church full of believers, hey, I'm out here knocking on your door. Would you allow me to come inside your heart 
and have intimacy with you. Wait a minute. If we're Christians, isn't Christ already inside of our hearts? What in the world is going on here? How in the world did we go from intimacy with Christ to Christ standing on the outside of our door, knocking to come back in for the intimacy that we once shared? That's a frightening joke. It's a frightening thing to think about. It's a joke with no punchline. And if it can happen to the Christians in Laodicea, could it not also happen to us? You see, here's the deal. God is calling us to be alive, alert, on fire disciples. I mean disciples who are living on the cutting edge of Christianity. Dynamic and enthusiastic. But we can't do that if Christ is on the outside of our hearts. Well, he forgave my sin. Okay, that's good. But he's wanting to come back inside for that intimate relationship that you used to have. You see, we can't be all that God calls us to be. He's calling us to be Christians who are living in radical obedience to his lordship. In other words, he doesn't want to be number one in our lives. What? It's true. Jesus doesn't want to be number one in our lives because he knows that whatever we put in the number one position will eventually fall to the number two spot or maybe the number three position. God won't settle for a position. He won't settle for a number. He doesn't want to be number one in our lives. He wants to be our lives. He wants to saturate you. He wants to consume you. He wants to permeate every area of your being. That can't happen without intimacy with Jesus Christ. And so, like the Laodiceans, we could find ourselves with Christ on the outside knocking and yearning for the intimacy that he used to share, that we used to have with him. So God is calling us to be an exciting, alive, dynamic, cutting-edge disciple, one who's living in radical obedience to his lordship. But we can't do that if we get comfortable. If we get comfortable calling our own shots, if we get comfortable with the sin in the world around us, then we can't be all that God calls us to be. There's always a price to pay for being comfortable. I used to be uh, a high school speech and drama teacher. <laughs> it was about 100 years ago. And I taught in the public school system. And uh, Jason got a little comfortable with the off-color language that he used out in the football field. And when he sauntered into my class, some of those words just carelessly slipped out of his mouth. The price was high, as it always is when we get too comfortable. For Jason, the price was he had to sit in my trash can with the trash for the rest of the hour. I figured if he's going to talk like the trash, he might as well sit with the trash. <laughs> There's always a price to pay for being too comfortable. And when we tend to get comfortable, God, through the Holy Spirit, sounds an alarm in our lives. And when God sounds an alarm in a specific area of your lives, don't push the snooze button. So God is calling us to be dynamic disciples, cutting-edge Christians, living in, in radical obedience to his lordship. To do that, number one, we can't get comfortable. With the sin in the world around us, we can't get comfortable calling our own shots. Because when we do, number two, we fall asleep spiritually. Now, you've all been there on, a, on a, maybe a lazy Friday night uh, or, or maybe an evening and you're laying on the floor, you're leaning back on, in a lazy boy recliner and you're watching television or you're watching a movie and you just get so comfortable. You know what the next thing is, don't you? 
you just doze off. You just fall asleep because that's a natural physical progression. Unfortunately, when that happens spiritually, we're in a dangerous situation. You see, when we fall asleep spiritually, suddenly things aren't so black and white. They aren't so cut and dry. It's hard to tell what's truth from what's false because everything starts to blend together. And it becomes kind of a, a hazy mixture, a, a big, uh, confusing, confusing blur. And it's hard for us to tell what's right and what's wrong. And when that happens, God will sound the alarm but when he does, oftentimes we just push the snooze button. Again, God is yearning for that intimacy in your heart with you that maybe at one time you once had that's easy to walk away from. Don't walk away from that. When God does sound an alarm in your lives, don't push the snooze button. Now, this is a true story. A friend of mine shared this story with me. He's a doctor, and he said, Susie, there was an elderly lady who needed gall, her gallstones removed. Now, gallstones, are they're pretty minuscule. Uh, she didn't have any family left. She had no friends, and she was scared to death of this procedure. He said, ma'am, I do hundreds of these uh, uh, throughout the year, and it, it's minor. There will be no complications. It would be an in-and-out type thing. But she was just scared to death, and she said, I will only do it uh, for, for, I've got two expectations. Number one, you'll fix it so I can spend the night in the hospital. She wouldn't have needed to, but she said, I, I'm scared, so I want you to fix that. And then number two, if you will save my gallstones and put them in a little, I don't know, I want to put, put them in a jar when I take them home. Some people like to collect things. <laughs> Maybe you collect inside parts. I don't know. But anyway, so she went in for the gallstone surgery. And he worked it out so that she could spend the night. And while she's in the recovery room, you know, she hasn't been taken to her room yet. She's in the recovery room coming out of the anesthesia, very groggy. And then finally a nurse wheels her to her room. And about 45 minutes later, the doctor comes by to check on her. And he says, well, how are you doing? How are you feeling? Very groggily because she's still coming out of this deep-seated slumber. She rubs her eyes and she says, well, okay, I guess. But, but, I guess, but you promised me that you would save my gallstones. And I agreed to this surgery. And you said you would save my gallstones. And you haven't done that. You didn't keep your end of the bargain. And he said, well, ma'am, I, I did save your gallstones. In fact, I came by about 20 minutes ago and I put them right here on your nightstand. You know what's coming next. Oh, no, she said. I thought that was my medication, and I have just swallowed those. Oh, please. <laughs> please allow me to make a very obvious point, okay? <laughs> please allow this very obvious point. Obviously, she wasn't thinking clearly because she had fallen asleep. The same thing happens spiritually. When we fall asleep spiritually, it's not so easy to see what's right, what's wrong, what's truth, what's false. It, again, it all becomes a mixture, a haze, a big confusing blur. Let me give you another example. Tracy was in my last period speech class of the day when I was teaching high school speech and drama. Tracy always came to class, good for her, she never ditched, and she always brought her stuff with her. She brought her textbook with her, she brought a pencil, and she brought note paper with her, good. A lot of kids wouldn't bring their supplies, but Tracy was there, and she always had her supplies with her. But as soon as she got into class, she'd put the book on her desk, put her head on the book, and she would go to sleep. Tracy never turned in an outline for a speech, she never gave a speech, she never completed any homework, she never turned in a worksheet, she never passed a test. 
And so no matter how many progress reports I sent home, no matter how many phone calls I made, no matter, no matter how many times I tried to encourage her, hey, Tracy, come on, girl, we got we to gotta, we gotta get you a better grade. Well, basically, we have to get you a grade because <laughs> you don't have one. Um, no matter how hard I tried, Tracy didn't care. Nobody in her family cared what she did in speech class. So you can probably guess what grade she got at the end of the semester. But when school was over, she came into my room just waving that report card over her head, just furious, yelling, how in the world, Miss Schellenberger, can you give me an F in speech class? I said, well, Tracy, it is pretty basic. This is a class in oral communication. Therefore, at some point during the semester, oral sounds do need to be uttered. <laughs> Tracy, you have literally slept your way through the entire semester. You've never turned in a worksheet, never done any homework, never passed a test, never gave a speech outline, never gave a speech, and you wonder why you would get the grade you've gotten? Tracy, wake up! And I wonder, does our Heavenly Father sometimes shake his head in sadness when we have the audacity to shake our fists saying, why is it God? That it seems like my prayers just don't get through anymore. They just seem to bounce off the walls. I used to like to read the Bible. I don't even want to open it up anymore. It's not even interesting anymore. It doesn't draw me inside anymore. Why is it? You seem so far away. How come you've distanced yourself from me? And I wonder, does God sadly shake his head? Oh, my child, wake up. You've fallen asleep and you wonder why I seem distant. You've fallen asleep, and you wonder why your prayers are simply bouncing off the wall. Wake up and see what I, the Lord your God, can do for you. When God sounds an alarm in a specific area of your lives, don't push the snooze button. Now, when, at this public school, when we had semester tests, and I know every public school doesn't, some public schools have nine weeks tests and not semester tests, but ours had both. And our, uh, when we had semester tests, the entire schedule would change for two days. Now, first of all, on this public school campus, we had uh, open campus lunch. So students could leave for the lunch period. And it was really a pretty good size lunch period. I mean, today in public schools, you have like, what, 12 minutes to scarf down your lunch. But back then, they had a good 40 minutes for lunch. So they really did have time to get in their car and leave and go to McDonald's or Wendy's or whatever and come back and still have time for class. But on semester test day, again, we would carve out two days of the week, back to back, and the schedule would change. And instead of having six classes each day, we would only have three classes each day. But each class would be extended. And so instead of only lasting, I don't know, maybe 50 minutes, a normal class period, the class would last an hour and a half. So students would have plenty of time to take the semester test. And then they had a little organized break uh, right in the middle of the day, in the middle of the morning, and uh, parents would bring up refreshments and all that stuff. So it was really kind of a neat schedule. Well, weeks before semester test would arrive, uh, Papers would be sent home, uh, letters would be sent home to, to parents, and the, uh, the announcements would be made every morning. This is semester test day schedule. So for weeks, they would have it in their mind. And every teacher would post the schedule in her or his classroom. So everyone knew the schedule for semester test day. Well, <clears throat> my uh, speech class in the afternoon 
would normally meet on a regular day, it would meet from 1 o'clock to about 1.45. But on semester test day, it would go from 11.30 to 1 o'clock, right in the middle of lunch hour. Of course, they would have uh, a uh, lunch hour after that and then another test and the break in the morning. And so we had announced this forever, it seemed like. But on semester test day, I don't know if Paul just wasn't paying attention, but he went out to eat at a Mexican place during um, what should have been his speech class. He got in the car with some of his buddies, and, and he came in about two minutes until one, thinking the class would start at one, it's normal time, not knowing or realizing that it actually was ending in two minutes. He sauntered through the door with a toothpick in his mouth, bragging about the sopapillas we ordered and, and the extra tacos, so all, the, all the stuff that you would get at a Mexican meal. I'm making you hungry, aren't I? <laughs> And I said, Paul, did, did you not pay attention? Today is semester test day. By now it was one minute until one o'clock. I said, you don't have time to take this semester test in one minute. Did you forget, Paul? Yeah, I just, I don't know, I blew it off. I wasn't thinking. I don't, it's okay, Ms. Schellenberger, don't worry. I'll just take the test later. I'll take it after school. I said, Paul, I, I don't think I can give you the test after school. I'm only allowed to give it during this specific time. Oh, I'll check with the principal. He and I are good buddies. Well, he did know the principal well because it was in his office about every other day. <laughs> I wouldn't say they were buddies. But I said, Paul, I don't, I don't think you're going to be allowed to take this test another time. Still, Paul wasn't worried a bit. Miss Schellenberger, don't you worry. I'll take that test. It's no big deal. I promise you, this is no big deal. I said, Paul, it really is a big deal. You see, your average in my class is a 28. <laughs> you need at least a 66 to pass the course. Now, if you had taken the test, even if you failed the test, I could have still passed you with a D minus, 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 because you were here, and at least you got your name right on the test, and you put forth an effort. But, Paul, you're failing some of your other classes. So that means you have to pass this class to be able to walk across stage and get your diploma. He was a senior. So Paul, if you fail this class, you don't graduate. Well, Paul wasn't allowed to take the test later, and he never did graduate. Why is it we think that it happens to everyone else except me? But Jesus tells us in Peter, 2 Peter, he says, you know what, it, if I didn't even spare the angels from heaven, what makes you think that I will spare you? In other words, we can't afford the luxury of making excuses. Oh, I'll get closer to Jesus next week. Or in the summer when I have more time. Christmas break, that'll give me a lot. Then I'll really focus on Jesus. You know, it's about his birthday anyway. And all this. I'll, then I'll really get serious about Jesus. We can't afford the luxury of making excuses. Jesus wants intimacy with you. And he's knocking at the door of your heart. When God sounds an alarm. In a specific area of your lives, don't push the snooze button. Now, let's just say that Buddy Marston is a family doctor. And I go to Buddy this week. We're having revival, and I go to Buddy, and I say, Buddy, I'm not feeling too well. I mean, I really feel lousy. So Buddy runs some tests, and he calls me a little bit later. Monday evening, he gives me a call, and he says, Susie, wow, I have some news for you. You have tuberculosis. And I say, buddy, you're kidding me. I got a flu shot. 
Well, that's good, Susie. Gay and I are happy that you got your flu shot. But still, the tests have been run, the results have come back, and you have TB. But, buddy, I got a flu shot. Susie, I understand that. We're glad that you got your flu shot, but you had TB. <laughs> I got a flu shot. How often do we say, I asked Jesus to forgive me of my sins. Okay, good, good. That's wonderful. And he did forgive your sins. And he came to live inside your heart. But establishing and maintaining intimacy with him is an ongoing thing. And so for us to say, well, God forgave my sins, doesn't necessarily mean that we're experiencing intimacy with him. We have to get that flu shot every year if we want to keep it updated. And we need to maintain that intimacy through the Holy Spirit with our Savior, Jesus Christ, if we want to keep that current. Again, this falling asleep can mean we're on dangerous ground. You know the drill. You've been into a dimly lit restaurant, kind of a fancy place. It's a little bit expensive. And at first, it's hard to see the menu because it's so dimly lit. But after about five minutes, maybe eight minutes, your eyes grow accustomed to the darkness. That's what's happening in our church today. When I say church, I'm speaking in general terms. We as Christians are growing accustomed to the darkness. We've become so comfortable with the sin in the world around us. We've become so comfortable calling our own shots. God forgave my sin, but I'm still calling my own shots. And I'm, I'm pretty comfortable with what's going on in the world. But God forgave me. I mean, I'm, I'm a Christian. God, God, God forgave me. We've become so comfortable that we've fallen asleep spiritually. And when we fall asleep spiritually, again, we're on dangerous ground. Peter says to us, 1 Peter 5, 7 and 8, he says, be careful, watch out. Those are action verbs, aren't they? Be careful, watch out for Satan, your great enemy. He prowls around like a hungry, roaring lion, just looking for some victim to tear apart. Who's the victim? It's you and it's me. It's those of us who have experienced forgiveness for our sins. He doesn't care about the, the non-believers. He already has them. He's after you and he's after me. Now be careful and watch out can't be accomplished standing flat-footed. <sighs> can it? To be careful and to watch out. We need to be on our toes. We need to be living defensively. I played uh, college tennis for four years. And I had a habit of just standing flat-footed, having a great time out on the court, but flat-footed. And my coach was always yelling, on your toes, Schellenberger, on your toe, yeah, oh yeah, on your And today when I watch professional tennis, you would never see Serena Williams standing flat-footed on the court, would you? And even before the ball comes over the net for the serve, she's not only on her toes, but she's jumping, isn't she? Up. She's ready. She's on the defense. It's time that we Christians be on the defense, that we live spiritually defensive against Satan who wants to lure us into a deep-seated slumber so we won't have that intimacy with Christ. Now, as we wrap up, I want to share a true story with you, and of course, it's found from the Bible, so of course it's true. It's found in Genesis chapters 18 and 19. It centers around Abraham and Lot. Abraham was Lot's uncle. 
the area that they were living had become too crowded for both of their households. When I say household, I mean not only their immediate family, but grandparents and un uncles and aunts and kids and offspring and household servants and farmhands, just a lot of people. And so one day Abraham said, Lot, it's too crowded. We're going to have to split up. So you uh, choose where you want to live and I'll go the opposite direction. That way we'll both have plenty of space. So Lot thought it over and he said, Uncle Abe, I'm moving over there. And Uncle Abraham said, wow, over there, um, that's, that's, that, that land is in Sodom and Gomorrah. Are you sure that's where you want to live? Because you've heard about Sodom and Gomorrah, haven't you? It's full of, of evil. I mean, those are really two sexually promiscuous, wicked cities. Are you sure you want to live there? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It won't affect me because I know what I believe. And the land is so fertile. And it has the river there. And we'll be successful farmers and ranchers. Our crops will grow. That's where I want to move. I'm not going to actually live inside the city limits. I want you to know that. I'm just going to live on the outskirts. So Lot and his wife packed up their two little girls, and they moved on the outskirts of Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham went the opposite direction. And years passed. Let's push the fast forward button. Years have passed, and the community really likes Lot. We know that he made some really good friends in Sodom and Gomorrah, and he became pretty popular because he was considered the gatekeeper. He would sit outside of the gates of Sodom and Gomorrah. This was an elected position. So you had to be really well liked to get that spot. It was an important, prestigious position. Well, the, came time as we, uh, the time came as we fast-forwarded that Lot's girls are now in their teenage years. And it got to be such a hassle. Anytime they wanted groceries or whatever, Lot and his family had to go all the way into town to get it and then all the way back out on the outskirts of the city to where they lived. And so finally, Lot made the decision. He said, you know what? Let's just pack up and move right inside the city limits, okay? It's just too much hassle living out here on the outside. So they packed up, and they moved right smack dab inside the city limits of Sodom and Gomorrah. There they lived, right there in the middle. Lot's still thinking, it won't affect us. We know what we believe. Well, you know the story. Again, we're going to push the fast forward button. The sexual promiscuity had become so heightened, and it had become so evil, that God looked down from heaven and said, I can't tolerate it anymore. I'm going to have to destroy these two cities. I don't want them on the face of the earth anymore. This has gone too far. And so from heaven, he sends down two angels. They are disguised as humans, as men. And the angels come, and they meet Lot. There he is, sitting at the gate. And they say to him, Lot, I know we look like men, but we're really from the supernatural realm. We have come from heaven. God has sent us. He's going to destroy these two cities because they've become so sexually perverse and evil. But Lot, we know that you and your family love the Lord. And so we want to take you outside the city limits and protect you so that you won't be caught up in God's wrath. He loves you that much. Lot took the two men home. He had a conversation with them. You know, are, are you sure? I mean, what's this going to happen? And Lot, we just need to do this now. The, the time is approaching fast. We need to do it now. Time is of the essence. Well, the men of the city saw Lot walking home with these two new men whom they didn't know. And the Bible tells us that men of the city encircled Lot's home. I can imagine the torches. I can imagine they picked up rocks and pieces of broken glass and bottles. They began pounding on the side of his home, on the walls, and began hurling the rocks at him. Began screaming, Lot, give us those two men so we can have our way with them. We want those two men. And Lot, he panicked. Oh my goodness, no. He's screaming through a crack in the window. You don't even know what you're asking. These aren't two normal human being men. These are angels. These are supernatural beings. They're just disguised as men. These aren't human men. You don't know what you're asking. 
But the pressure starts to build, and the tension begins to grow, and, and they become, the, the crowd becomes furious, and they come closer, and when they're just about ready to burn the house down and capture the two men, Lot, again, through a crack in the window, screams out, Please, if you'll just leave these two men of God alone, I will give you instead my two teenage daughters. What? Did you just say you would offer your two teenage daughters to be given to a group of men in the city? What? Certainly not the response that God would have you give in a pressure-filled situation. That's not of God. What are you thinking, Lot? What's going on in your mind? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Everything used to be so cut and dry. It used to be so clear, so black and white. It was so easy to know what was right and what was wrong. And God was so close. And when I prayed, I, I knew that my prayers reached the ears of Jehovah God. But I don't know anymore. He seems so far. And when I pray, I don't even know if my prayers are reaching heaven. I don't know. God seems so far. That's right, Lot. Because you've fallen asleep spiritually. And when we fall asleep spiritually, we can't tell. Is that really wrong? Would God really call this sin? Is there really a hell? Jesus really the only way to heaven? Because I have some Hindu friends that are really kind, some Buddhists that are so nice, some nicer than some of my Christian friends. I don't, I don't know anymore. It all becomes a hazy blur. The angels temporarily blinded the men of the city and Lot and his family made it safely through the night. Let's catch up in scripture where we are now. We're in, we're in um, Genesis chapter 19. And uh, we're in verse 14. The angels are trying to, to hurry Lot and his family out of the city. And Lot says, please can I tell my, my daughter's fiancés so they can come with us. We want them to be saved from God's wrath too. So Lot rushed out. We're in Genesis 19 verse 14. So Lot rushed out to tell his daughter's fiancés, quick, get out of the city. God is going to destroy it. Listen to the response of his daughter's fiancés. But the young men looked at him as though he had lost his senses. What? You're crazy. You think God is really going to destroy these two cities because people are just doing their own thing? Wow. What shell are you living under, Lot? You really believe that God is going to actually destroy two cities? Come on, Lot. You've lost your sense. You're crazy. You know what? When you live in radical obedience to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, that's how the world will respond to you. Psst. You're not going to go see that movie with me? Because it's got questionable stuff in it? Psst. Oh, brother. Well, you're, you, it's just a wine cooler. <laughs> you're not going to that party with me just because they're serving alcohol? You don't have to drink. <laughs> the world will look at you as though you've lost your senses when you start to live in radical obedience to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Let's continue on with scripture and, and unpack the rest of the story. At dawn, the angels became urgent. Hurry, they said to Lot, take your wife and your two daughters who are here and get out while you can or you will be caught in the destruction of the city. 
when Lot still hesitated. Why are you still hesitating, Lot? I don't know. It's just, do, is this really sin? I mean, because everybody's, I mean, I, I, would God, are people really going to hell simply because, it, it, is there really a hell? Is there, well, I, while Lot still hesitated, the angel seized his hand. They're urgent. In the hand of his wife and two daughters and rushed them to safety outside the city for the Lord was merciful. In verse 17, chapter 19, verse 17. Flee for your lives, the angels told him, and don't look back. You know, when we're talking about temptation in the Bible, have you noticed that we're told to flee from it? Run the opposite direction. Timothy, or Paul tells Timothy, Timothy, run from all things that give you evil thoughts. Don't turn around. Just run and get as far away from it as possible and think instead on good things. So the angels are given that same advice. Here's something that's tantalizing. Here's something that might be hard to believe, that it's, but run from it. Flee. Don't look back. Get away from it. But you know what happened? Lot's wife stopped and looked back, and immediately she was killed. Why did she stop and look back? I don't know. Could it be that she too was having trouble believing that God would really destroy, that God really is going to judge sin? That we really will be held accountable? Well, let's continue. The angel said, don't stay down here on the plane or you will die. Flee to the mountains. Oh, no, sirs, Lot begged. Please, please, instead of going all the way to the mountains, can I just go to that little village over there? Because it's close by. <laughs> How close to sin can I get but still sneak into heaven? That's not the right question. We have to learn to start asking the right questions. Father, is there anything else in my life that I need to commit to you? I want to be sold out. Jesus, I want to be living in radical obedience to your lordship. I do not want you knocking on the outside of my heart's door. I want to be intimate with you. Well, Lot and his two daughters were saved. But what I want to bring to your attention is down in verse 27 of Genesis 19. It says, that morning... Uh, the Lord woke up Abraham and brought him out to a place where he stood before the Lord. And he looked out across the plains of Sodom and Gomorrah, and he saw huge columns of smoke as if from a furnace rising to the heavens. And so Abraham is looking out across this desolate, charred, darkened death mass. My question to you is, why do you think that God bothered to wake Abraham up and bring him here to view this. I mean, those of you that have seen a place that's been burned, it's depressing, isn't it? It's awful. Abraham, look. Why? I'm over here living a godly life. Things are fine. Why would you wake me up and bring me here to see this charred, desolate mess? I want to suggest that it was because God wanted to burn an image in Abraham's mind. Abraham, get a good look. Put all these details indelibly in your mind because Abraham, this, don't ever forget, this, Abraham, Always remember, this is what happens when good people fall asleep spiritually. Number one, we get too comfortable. With the sin in, with the, sin in the world around us or calling our own shots. Well, I, I, I'm not involved in that sin. Now, I don't believe that Lot was involved in sexual sin, but I do believe he got comfortable about, with it. He got comfortable hearing the stories. You know how it is. Uh, Monday morning at school or Monday morning around the water cooler in the office. And you hear all the talk about what people did over the weekend. Who slept with who and how many drinks did it take to get you really out. And what party did you go to. And 
well, I'm not involved in it, but I've become comfortable listening to it. God forbid that we get so comfortable with the sin in the world around us. When we get comfortable, we fall asleep. And when we fall asleep, we can't discern right from wrong. It's just a hazy blur. And when we fall asleep spiritually, the very next step is spiritual death. It leads to a hardened heart where we ignore God's voice for so long that we get to a place where we no longer hear his voice or his gentle knocking on our heart's door. I don't believe that Lot was involved in the sin, but I believe that he had fallen asleep spiritually. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and answers the door, I will come in and will have the intimacy that I want to have with you. When God sounds an alarm in a specific area of your lives, don't push the snooze button. And it could be that God is sounding an alarm in your life right now. Yeah, Jesus and I, we used to be so close. Things were, oh, I was so tight with Jesus, but I don't know. There's this distance between us now. Could it be like the church in Laodicea, the church to whom this verse was written, that Jesus is knocking on your heart's door? And so here's the most frightening knock-knock joke. When Jesus is on the outside of your heart, but you're a Christian, he's forgiven your sins, what's he doing when he's on the outside of your heart knocking? Knock-knock, Jesus says. And we say, who's there? There's no punchline. When we no longer recognize the voice of our Savior, that we have to say, who's there? When we no longer recognize the sound of his knock, that we have to say, who is it? Then we're on dangerous ground. And that can lead to a hardened heart. Will you stand, please? Right now, in the quietness of this moment, would you pray this prayer silently right now? Just silently. Would you pray this prayer, dear Jesus? Have I fallen asleep spiritually? Would you ask him that silently? Dear Jesus, have I fallen asleep spiritually? Dear Jesus, is there any area in my life that's not right with you? Would you ask him that? Jesus, is there any area of my life that's not right with you? If so, would you bring that area to my mind right now? Help me think of it. Make me aware of it. Would you tell Jesus right now what you want? Would you say, dear Jesus, I want intimacy with you. Oh, I want us to be tight. I want to be intimate with you, Jesus. I want you to be Lord of my life. That's what he wants too. Well, Susie, I, yeah, I think, I think maybe God is sounding an alarm in my life right now. I, I'm just, I'm not sure what, what, what does an alarm really sound like. Well, my guess is that it sounds an awful lot like this. Jesus knocking softly on your heart's door. With your heads bowed, you've prayed.
You've asked Jesus to bring an area to your life that may not be right with him. You've asked him if you've fallen asleep spiritually. If this has resonated with you, yes, it's, it's struck a chord in your heart. Would you just lift your hand up? Yeah, wonderful. You're listening and the Holy Spirit speaking. Oh, that tells me that you have soft hearts. It tells me that your hearts are tender. They are not hardened. They are not hardened. This is, this is the place where you want to be with soft hearts, hearing that gentle knock on the door. We're going to sing, um, I Surrender. And as we sing, if God is knocking on your door for more intimacy, would you just come right now? Go ahead right now, even really before we start the song. Jody's already started the background music. Would you go ahead and come now before we actually start singing? Go ahead. Yeah, I, I raised my hand, Susie. That's what I want. God is knocking on my heart's door. I want intimacy with him. Several of you raised your hands. Would you be obedient and come now? You see, this starts our revival. Our revival will go through the week. We'll end on Wednesday night. But really, tonight sets the foundation. It sets the tone for the rest of the week. If you are obedient tonight, if you'll allow God to work on this very first night, a rainy Saturday evening, then I think God is going to be faithful all the other services that we have. Would you come now? Let's sing together. And you come and respond in obedience as we sing. All to Jesus I surrender come on. All to Him I pray. 